0: Please, please bow your hearts in prayer with me. Father, we, we do sing how great you are. And as, as great as that, that hymn is, and as familiar as it is, and as much as we rise with the familiarity, the enthusiasm of the music, the, the, the lofty words, <clears throat> our words fall short of Of adequately describing your greatness. That you are a a great, great God with great, great holiness, fierce justice, and overriding mercy. And it is by your mercy, by your your infinite grace that we are able to come here this morning, not as, as a group of people waiting a hopeless judgment, but as people proclaiming your name, washed by the blood of Jesus that was shed on the cross. And now, as children of God, upon whom you look and see the righteousness of Christ. Only you can change us like that. And, and God, I know at least for me, there's so many times where I, I look out at creation and I see spring coming to life. Or I, I see a big storm or, or mountains or, or something else and I, I marvel at your power. And how much greater is your power that you didn't stop at making mountains, but that you would transform people who were originally made in your likeness, who fell away in their sin, and who can now know you. So, Father, we we come to your word. Not just wanting advice that will help us on Tuesday. Not looking for anecdotes or quips. But God, we want to know You. And so, Father, I pray that in our time in Hosea 13, when this time's done, that we would know You. Please grace us with that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. When Andy Dufresne arrived at Shawshank Prison for a crime he didn't commit, he along with the other new arrivals were handed Bibles from the warden. And as the warden handed them the Bible, he would sternly say, Salvation lies within. Sometime later when Andy, spoiler alert, when Andy... He escaped, slowly chiseling a wall, a hole in the wall with the little rock hammer that Red had helped him acquire. The warden came into his cell, furious that a prisoner had escaped, and opened up the Bible he had handed Andy early many years prior, and found cut out pages. And within those pages was set a worn-down rock hammer and a note that said, Dear Warden, you're right. Salvation does lay within. Foreshadowing is is a subtle and really fun technique used in storytelling and movies. And in, in Shawshank Redemption, the warden unknowingly enables the escape of the protagonist which is made all the more meaningful because the entire thing is narrated by Morgan Freeman. <laughs> but here's the thing about foreshadowing. Even if we catch it, let's say you're watching a movie for the first time, the, the writer and director have put in a little nugget of foreshadowing. Something as, as con- maybe it's something as confusing as as a, a battle between Luke Skywalker and and Darth Vader, and Luke Skywalker wins, but in the mask is Luke Skywalker's own face. You think, oh, he must be related to Darth Vader somehow. Even if you get it, and you think, oh, this is definitely coming, the way in which that, that foreshadowing unfolds is always surprising, especially when it's done right. And you, the ups and downs of the plot hook you in and they're unpredictable so that when it's done, you're like, well, I saw it coming, but I didn't think it'd come like that. That's, that's the book of Hosea for us. Hosea 2 foreshadows the entire chapter. It, it lays it out. It lays out the whole book. And if, if you don't mind thumbing back to Hosea 2 from chapter 13... We see if we, if we start at verse 8 and we, we start going down, we see that the, the people were unaware that it was God who supplied them with everything they had. And that God said he's, he's going to take back the abundance that they have and he's going to bring shame on them so that all these other lovers, these other false gods, these other nations that they've, they've tried to seduce with their riches won't desire them anymore. And then he takes the symbols of their wealth, their vines. And these vines that they've said, oh, look what these, look what Baal gave me. Look what Baal su- supplied for me, my vineyards. And this is in verse 12. And, and it says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take that away. I'm going to lay waste to it. She said, these are my wages from my lovers. I'm going to take them away. She's, she's going to become a, just a wild field. And there's going to be punishment because they've forgotten God and they went after others instead. And then in verses 14 and 15 is God saying, I'm going to call her back to me. I'm going to lure her and I'm going to give her vineyards. Again, once she realizes that it's me, is her provision it's me who is her portion it's me who is her shelter her peace her salvation it's not the bales it's not assyria it's not her political rulers it's me god and the foreshadowing as we read hosea 2 the foreshadowing is bad that god's going to come and lay waste But the whole picture when we read chapter 2 is we see the hope at the end that God's going to call her into the desert and speak tenderly to her. But when we get to Hosea 13, in the picture of of chapter 2, we're around verses 12 and 13 of of chapter 2 in Hosea, where God says, I'm going to lay waste. And it's one thing to hear a broad term of, I'm going to lay waste and I'm going to remove the vineyard. And to hear that foreshadowing is one thing. It's really, really simple to hear that and just keep reading through the end. And it's another thing altogether to read then in chapter 13 of Hosea exactly how God is going to lay waste. And it doesn't sound hope-filled and inspiring. Hosea 13 doesn't make the verse of the day on Caleb. The people have forsaken their love of God, but God has not forsaken them. But He is bringing His judgment. And His judgment is loving and necessary. He's, through His judgment, He's calling them back to Him. The judgment is strong. It's frightening. It's drastically calling people back to God who are flirting with hell. It's harsh. But it's like God lovingly tackling His people right before they go off a cliff. It's pulling them away from their idolatry. And as we read passages like Hosea 13 that seem to have more darkness than light, we need to remember that God is not a God of unnecessary violence. He is holy, He is loving, and sometimes that holy love of God takes on the form of judgment. And in the case of Hosea's ministry, It's God lovingly and strongly redirecting His people back to Himself because He is the most important. He is what's essential. He is the true God and the giver of all good things. So this morning as we go into Hosea 13, as we look at this redirection that God pulls pulls His people towards, we see that it's out of love that God redirects His people and he, he redirects them through his provision. And the first thing God provides is humility. Here he is providing humility. Read with me the first six verses. When Ephraim spoke, there was trembling. He was exalted in Israel, but he incurred guilt through Baal and died. And now they sin more and more and make for themselves metal images, idols skillfully made of their silver, all of them the work of craftsmen. It is said of them, those who offer human sacrifice kiss calves. Therefore, they shall be like the morning mist or like the dew that goes early away like the chaff that swirls from the threshing floor, or like smoke from a window. But I am the Lord your God. From the land of Egypt, you know no God but me, and besides me there is no Savior. It was I who knew you in the wilderness, in the land of drought. But when they had grazed, they became full. They were filled And their heart was lifted up. Therefore, they forgot me. Ephraim. I mean, Ephraim reeked of pride and prestige. You think back to who who Ephraim was as an individual. This was Joseph's son. This is Jacob's favorite son's son. So his favorite grandson. And he was born into the lap of luxury in Egypt. He was a symbol of wealth and power and honor. But we need to remember what a danger pride is to our soul. Because on, on human merit, on status, Ephraim had every right to be prideful, but pride is a danger to our soul. Peter quotes Proverbs in warning us that God opposes the proud but gives Grace to, to the humble. Solomon in Proverbs says, when, in 11.2 says, when pride comes, then comes disgrace. But with the humble is wisdom. And later on in, in 29.23 of Proverbs, one's pride will bring him low, but he who is lowly in spirit will obtain honor. Ephraim Tried to shortcut it. My pride will get me to honor. And the text says when Ephraim spoke there was trembling. Everyone listened to Ephraim. Ephraim had it going on. And and this is is like the golden age of the northern kingdom that that Hosea is speaking to. Ever since the kingdom split Israel had never had a time like this. Their military was getting mighty. Their border was secured. Their currency was going up. The Unemployment rate was dropping. Everything was going right. They were becoming the Israel they thought they were always meant to be. And here comes Hosea, the prophet they thought was mad, and he's saying, look, you guys, you think you have it all going on. But what you really have going on is your guilt. And you're going to be like the morning mist that's gone before lunch. You're going to rise up. Everyone's going to say, oh, look at that fog. And then it's gone. And that's what your life will amount to. They were physically exalted and spiritually empty. Jesus had a way of describing this to the Pharisees. He called them whitewashed tombs. That you you say you have it all right. You build up all your pomp and your circumstance. And inside you're dead. You're building calves. And the king of Israel at the time led them in child sacrifice. Sacrificing his own kids. And Hosea brings an indictment that those who offer human sacrifice kiss calves. You are not depending on God. The the Lord is your strength and your shield and your fortress. And you're going after a piece of jewelry. You're going after gold and silver that tarnish and get dented when the Lord Almighty is the one. And you will become nothing. You will be like a mist. You will be gone. We need to keep this in mind. That we are, we are in, in essence, no different. Remember the warning of James. That we shouldn't make all our plans. Your life is a vapor. And our time in this existence as a vapor is best spent bringing as much glory as we can to God our Father. And helping others to do the same. I think where we best find our humility is when we truly see who God is and we see ourselves in light of God. And so here's what God says, you're a mist, you're a vapor, you're the dew that's gone, you're like the chaff that gets blown up from the, from the threshing floor and is just blown away, the smoke out the window, that's you, but I am the Lord. He says, I'm the same one that brought you out of Egypt. I gave you salvation. I gave you blessings. The the whole time you've had no God but me. That calf didn't help you cross the Red Sea. The God who says, kill your children for me. He didn't deliver you from the Midianites or the Philistines. I brought you salvation. I'm your God. I'm the God who brought you through the wilderness through the land of drought. I'm the God who gave you salvation, who gives you blessings. It says, but when they grazed, when they got to the land flowing with milk and honey, they became full. They were filled, and their heart was lifted up, and therefore they forgot me. A couple months ago, I was at a gathering of local pastors. And um, there were a couple pastors there who uh, are pastors in churches uh, of, of refugee communities. And, and they themselves are from the lands that their people are from, same, same people groups. And one thing they testified to is that when their people come to the U.S., they've, they've been following, they were following God in the country they were from. They come to the U.S., and they start getting more economic security. They start getting more, uh, more money. They're able to afford some, some things that would have been luxuries in their, in their previous town. They, they lose their want, and as they lose that, that, that question of where's my bread gonna come from tomorrow, they also lose their prayer life. And I wonder... I wonder so much what would my how am how am I losing my prayer life through having plenty? I have no less of a need for God now than if I than what I would have if if I was living day to day trying to get enough money to feed my family tomorrow. I'd have the same need for God then as I do now, but I would realize it. So I wonder, do we realize our need for God? Do we realize what God has done for us? And one thing I, w- I want you to this week carve out some time and sit down and just start listing everything God has done for you. Every good and perfect gift comes down from above, from the Father of heavenly lights, who does not shift, who does not change like the shifting shadows. what, what do you have in your life that God has given you? And just start listing everything that you think you have because of God, and I challenge you to give God credit for too many things in your life. Can you do that? Can you give God too much credit? And go through that exercise, and what do I have because of God? What seasons of life have I come out the other end of because God has carried me through? And then thank him for that. Thank him for your salvation, your blessings. Thank him for the things he hasn't let you have. The problem with with our pride is it it does, and and the problem with plenty is it leads to self-sufficiency. David Platt, I heard him recently say, the greatest hindrance to the spread of the gospel is not the self-indulgent nature of our culture, but the self-sufficient mentality of the church. I'll read that again. The greatest hindrance of the spread of the gospel is not the self-indulgent nature of our culture, but the self-sufficient mentality of the church. That we, I worry worry this about myself. I worry this about us as a congregation, about the church within the U.S. Have we lost the sense of what it means to really cry out to God? To say, God, I I need you, I need no other, I need you. And to to humble myself before God. To fast before the Lord. To to deprive myself of whether it's food or social media or entertainment and say, I'm going to take all that time and energy and I'm going to devote it to crying out to God because I need God more than I need fill in the blank. Will we cry out to Him? Will we refuse To graze, become full, and lift ourselves up forgetting our God. Well, we refuse to let that pride come in. God provides us with humility. He provides us with humility by reminding us of who He is. Because how can we look at God, at who He is, at what He's done, and say, wow, I'm pretty, I'm pretty great. I'm pretty accomplished. God is pretty lucky to have me. Humility is how we approach God. It drives us to prayer because it allows us to see how little we are, how sufficient he is. It fuels our worship because it magnifies God by not allowing us to become demigods of our own existence. And humility allows our hearts to properly deal with the next thing God provides us with out of Hosea 13, and that's his divine judgment. Let's read verses 7 to 13. They have forgot me, is where verse 6 leaves off. So I am to them like a lion, like a leopard. I will lurk beside the way. I will fall upon them like a bear robbed of her cubs. I will tear open their breasts. I will devour them like a lion as a wild beast would rip them open. He destroys you, O Israel, for you are against me, against your helper, where now is your king to save you in all your cities? Where are your rulers, those of whom you said, Give me a king and princes. I gave you a king in my anger, and I took him away in my wrath. The iniquity of Ephraim is bound up. His sin is kept in store The pangs of childbirth come for him, but he is an unwise son, for at the right time, he does not present himself at the opening of the womb. These warnings are unbelievably harsh. God says, I'm a lion, I'm a leopard, I'm a bear robbed of her cubs, I'm a wild beast, and you're the prey. You're the enemy. Ephraim, this unwise son, childbirth comes and he doesn't present himself at the womb. He's going to be stillborn. He's going to be dead before he's even really alive. Before he breathes oxygen, he's going to be dead. Before he can cry, he's going to be dead. And the warnings are harsh and seem even over the top at times. But God's judgment is not wasted. It is not hurried. A commentary, Derek Kinder, this will be up on the screen. He says this, he says, The rest of the book must be allowed to put us on the other side of it. Showing us not only the logic of our spiritual sowing and reaping. Verse 8-7, these, these are all passages out of Hosea in ten, thirteen. Our deafness to reason and appeal. Our obstinacy, evasiveness, and wantonness but supremely the deep reluctance of God to resort to judgment and his longing that at last it may bring his people to their senses. Peter tells us, he says, don't, so many people are wondering what's taking Jesus so long to come back. Don't count the slowness of God as we count slowness, but look at it as his his patience that none should perish. That we would have more time to repent God's patience is un- unlike anything we know there's it's when we read God's judgment that we are tempted to doubt His goodness. How could, a, how could a kind and loving God say these things? But we need to see with it as Kinder points out, his patience I mean <laughs> who of us would wait as long as God there's a lot of us parents like we can barely count to five while keeping our composure in the midst of disobedience and God waits and waits by the time Hosea 13 comes in Hosea has been doing public preaching ministry for about 30 years or so God's no less offended by sin and no more offended by sin it's been an offense to him the whole time but he's patient and Israel tried to do a lot of things to get them out of judgment, to try, and, to try and get them a secure status as a nation. And they said, they went to Samuel and said, Samuel, we want a king. We don't want to be ruled by judges and priests and prophets anymore. We want a king. And remember what God said to Samuel. He said, Samuel, they're not rejecting you as, as a king and as a ruler. They're rejecting me. The way they demanded for a king. We want to be like the nations. We want to be like everyone else. And the kings, instead of leading them in worship and leading them in reading the law and keeping the law, led them in idolatry. God cares too much about his holiness and his people to let them live like there's there's no issue going on here. Like everything's fine to sweep it under the rug. He's unable to sweep it under the rug. He can store it up, but it has to be dealt with. And the news here is bad, and we need to face the bad news. We need to know the bad news. We need to know that we will reap what we sow. And we need to recognize a couple things. If one, if God doesn't judge, he's not worthy of worship. If God never deals with the wrongs, he's not worthy of our praise. If God says, you know what, go ahead and live like you want, I don't really care. Let's just try and be kind. That's not a God worthy of worship. It's a passive-aggressive God at best. He has to deal with it. Otherwise, He's not really good. And the other part is, if God doesn't tell us that the judgment is coming, He wouldn't be loving What doctor in their right mind would get the test back and say, oh, this is stage four cancer, and then never say anything to the patient? Our condition is bad. And God loves us enough to say it's bad and you need a remedy. And this condition is bad because it's not just a physical death they're going to encounter. It's a spiritual death. It's an eternal spiritual death. It is a unique judgment they will be like Ephraim. You will be dead before you are born. You, this is us. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. But where there's a unique judgment, God also provides a unique salvation. If you've been reading ahead in Hosea, you've probably been like, hurried up, Chuck. Let's get to verse 14. Shall I ransom them from the power of Sheol, from the power of the grave? Shall I redeem them from death? Shall I ransom them? Shall I redeem them? And as we're reading this the first time, if we don't have Christ in view, we look at this and we think, well, no, you shouldn't redeem them. They're awful. They don't deserve it. But that's the point. Romans 5.8, that God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Not when we were high and lofty and deserving it, while we were still sinners. There's a song on the radio that's recently started to get under my skin because I've paid a little more attention to it. And in the chorus, he, he says, show me that I'm someone worth dying for. And I just wanted to yell at my radio, you're not! You're not worth dying for and neither am I! And to argue that we are would cheapen the grace of God. We are no more worthy of someone dying for us than the people of Ephraim. We aren't worthy of being ransomed or redeemed. We aren't worthy of someone saving us from our greatest enemy, which is death. The good news is these are not empty rhetorical statements. These, these questions are a foreshadowing. Oh, death, where are your plagues? Oh, grave, where is your sting? God isn't summoning the plagues and sting of death in the grave. This is the great biblical trash talk that we love. Because the answer to these is in Christ. God does not abandon us to death, even when that's what we most deserve. Do death and the grave have the final word? If it does, if if, if death and the grave had the final word, there'd be no Hosea 14. There'd be no Easter Sunday that we're looking forward to in two weeks. Shall I ransom them? He paid our debt in full. Nailing our sin with its legal demands to the cross. Shall I redeem them? This calls back to Hosea 3. When Hosea went and found his wife who had left him in search of other lovers. Who had put herself in, in in a large amount of debt. And Hosea scrapped together the money to buy back his own wife. She was already his wife and he bought her back so she was twice his. You are twice God's if you call on his name. He created you in his likeness. You wandered away in your sin. You were dead in your trespasses, but Christ, by by the mercy of God, has made us alive and seated us in the heavenly places. If you are here this morning, Jesus is your Lord, and you believe in in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you are twice God's. He made you, and he redeemed you. So death. In the grave, where are your plagues and where are your sting? They are nowhere to be found because they have been conquered in the victorious resurrection of our Savior. Christ is not only our Redeemer, He is our victor. He beat that which we which we could not. Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that when we put on the immortal, when we enter into salvation, that death and the grave lose their power. They lose their sting. They are emptied of that. We have available to us a unique salvation. Salvation. Though he may flourish, it goes on verse 15 and 16. Though he may flourish among his brothers, speaking of Ephraim, the east wind of the Lord shall come, rising from the wilderness, and its fountains shall dry up. His springs shall be parched. It shall strip his treasury of every precious thing. Samaria shall bear her guilt, because she has rebelled against her God. They shall fall by the sword. Their little ones shall be dashed to pieces, and their pregnant women ripped open. There is great hope to be found in that the plagues and the sting of death in the grave have been vanquished in Christ. But if we try to go through our life without Christ, we will never experience the benefit of that vanquishing. We will never experience the benefit of being redeemed, of being ransomed, and of the victory of Christ. And for those who continue to go around saying, I have it, I can do this, I, am, I got this all on my own. I've built myself a, a pretty good life. And, I, and if God wants to disagree with it, he can disagree with it. It is, it is only in Christ that you find that victory. Your wealth won't give you that victory. Your, your lineage, your family tree won't give you that victory. Only Christ will. And we put on that immortality that we have through Christ by saying, Jesus is my Lord. He he is the King of my life. What He says I'm going to do, I'm going to walk with Him. And I believe that God raised Jesus from the dead securing my ransom, securing my redemption, securing the victory that is mine in Christ Jesus. Jesus over death in the grave. Let's pray. Father God, we, um, we need you so deeply. Lord, only you can provide this salvation. And apart from you, we are as hopeless as someone who stands between a bear and her cubs. Father, I pray that you would, if, if there's anyone in here who has not started following you, God, Lord, would, you, would you speak to their hearts? Would you say the time is now to follow me? And if, if, you're, if you're in here this morning and you feel that whisper in your heart, the time is now to follow me. Not to... Not to jump through a hoop of supposed righteousness, but to say, Jesus is my Lord, He's my King, and God raised Him from the dead, and I'm going to live life with Jesus as my Lord. If if that's you this morning, I I just want you to pray in your heart right now these, these words. Father God, I'm sorry I've sinned. I know my sin is a great offense to you. And that I deserve judgment. I also know that Jesus died on the cross for my sins. Lord, cover me with his sacrifice. I believe that Jesus was risen from the dead. Lord, change my heart, make it new, and let me follow you wholeheartedly with whatever days I have left. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.